Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Marielena Incapier and host Lions Filmer. Today's event is being offered in Spanish as well as in English, and introducing our fabulous translator, Flavia Manconi. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm Kira Epstein, the program coordinator for the New School at Commonweal. I'm here with Kamala Tully, the executive director at the Mesa Refuge, and we are so pleased and honored to co-present the first of our Empowering Women in Today's World conversation series. Today, Lions Filmer, our host, will be in conversation with Marielena Incampier, talking about migrant women shaping the path forward. Putting this series of conversations together has been a real pleasure for Kamala and I. Many thanks to the West Marin Fund for making it possible. We felt that it was important to include Spanish language translation in this series because we wanted to reach as many of the women and men that are changing our world as possible. This is our first foray into Spanish translations, and we hope you'll be patient as we work out the kinks. Big thanks to our translator, Flavia, who is doing the incredible job of listening in English and speaking in Spanish in real time. Amazing. In addition to today's conversation with Marielena, we have two more events in the series. In September, we welcome law professor, advocate, author, and mother, Lara Bazelon, to talk about embracing imbalance when it comes to work, life, and motherhood. In October, we welcome writer, speaker, and attorney Savala Nolan for a conversation about race, gender, and law. Flavio will be with us for both of those conversations, so we will have live translation in Spanish available. Many thanks to our host, Lyons, for working her magic to guide the conversation and bring in the best of our guests. You can find all of the conversations in this series on tns.commonweal.org or mesarefuge.org. So, Marielena Incambier and Lyons Filmer, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. I'll turn it over to Kamala now. Welcome, everyone. Bienvenidos a todos. We are so grateful to be partnering with the new school in this important and timely series and to be offering these conversations in Spanish. Kira, Ken, and Flavia have worked tirelessly to figure out how to do this, and thank you for all your efforts. I wanted to say a few words about Mesa Refuge, a retreat for writers and activists in Point Ray Station, north of San Francisco on Coast Miwok land. For the past 25 years, we have welcomed over a thousand writers, activists, radio journalists, and artists including Mary Elena Incapier, who was our May and Jack Ellenson public health fellow this spring, as well as Lyons Filmer, who was a West Marin community fellow in 2019. We are so proud of our alums for who they are in the world, the ideas and values they're uplifting, and how they're shaping public conversations. No doubt you will see for yourself today in this discussion of migrant women shaping the path forward. Now I'd like to turn it over to Lyons Fillmore, who will introduce herself as well as Mary Elena. Good morning. It's so lovely to have all of you here. 
and uh, brava to the New School and Mesa Refuge for putting together this conversation series. I'm Lyons Filmer. Uh, I've been in radio for 32 years or so, long enough that without headphones and a mic, I feel naked. <laughs> so <laughs> hallelujah for the headset. Uh, KWMR, which is West Marin Community Radio, is where I've spent the last 20 plus years. Uh, for about 18, 19 years of that, I was actually the program director at the radio station and met and worked with some truly amazing people. Uh, as a, a volunteer programmer, I still continue to do four different programs, including Mesa Refuge Conversations. And that is where I met Maria Elena Incapie when she was that uh, resident, uh, the Jack Ellis and Jack Ellison May and Jack Ellison Public Health Fellow. And uh, we had a chance to talk a bit then. Maria Elena was working on, is writing about the U.S. immigration system and weaving her personal story into a nonfiction book making the case for a paradigm shift in how we think about immigrants and immigration rights. Marielena Incapie is an immigrant from Medellin, Colombia. She grew up in Rhode Island as the youngest of 10 kids and became the interpreter for her parents at the schools, hospitals, government agencies, where she learned a lot about the structural barriers and inequities facing poor people in this country especially people of color and immigrants. As executive director of the National Immigration Law Center, NILC, and the NILC Immigrant Justice Fund, Maria Elena has helped shape the national movement for immigrant justice for more than 20 years. She earned her Juris Doctor degree from Northeastern University School of Law and has been appointed to co-chair the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force on Immigration. And a little later in the program, in the conversation, we will be talking about Maria Elena's writing. Maria Elena, shall we start with your own background? What, what were the circumstances in Colombia that drove your family to leave? Buenos dias, Lions. So wonderful to be with all of you. And a thank you first, a note of gratitude to both the New School and to Mesa Refuge and to the May and Jack. Ellison uh, Fellowship, which allowed me to um, go to the Mesa Refuge very recently um, to start exploring uh, my own personal story, start thinking about writing that, I'm starting to work on a book proposal as you descri um, described. So thanks again to you, Lions, for the opportunity today uh, to be part of this series on empowering women. Um, so as you mentioned, I was born in Medellin, Colombia. I was born um, the youngest of 10 children, although I like to say that I am uh, unwanted pregnancy number 13 because uh, my mother learned throughout her life that the Catholic Church rhythm method uh, did not work. Um, and she was pregnant for a large portion of her adult life, about 25, 30 years. And um, at the time that my family migrated to the United States, 
Um, Colombia had already been embarked on a civil war for over a decade. Um, we are actually just now, about 60 years later, uh, Colombia finally has reached a peace agreement that a new government there hopefully will finally implement. Um, but my father was recruited to Central Falls, Rhode Island, a densely populated one square mile city in the state of Rhode Island that was um, full of textile mills and as New England was during the time. And yes. one of the things a lot of people don't know about Colombia is the textile industry is one of the uh, largest industries there. And so my father and about seven other men were recruited um, by uh, factories, textile factories in Rhode Island to come to the United States. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you were, what, about three years old when your family came? That's right. I was three years old and we came a little bit later. My father came first. Um, mm -hmm. One of the big differences about when we immigrated from today is that we benefited from the civil rights movement, right? The civil rights movement um, was part of what opened the doors for removing the racial and national origin quotas to our immigration laws at the time back in 1965. And so my father um, was able to come to the United States. He was recruited on a work visa. He was considered a skilled worker as a loom fixer is what he did in the textile factories. And then he was able to petition for my mother and my siblings and I. And I'm in the process of interviewing my siblings and older family members. My parents passed away um, many years ago now, so I don't have the benefit of interviewing them right now. But um, to try to understand at a personal level, what was happening for them and the family. Um, we were a very large family. And I know even from when I was growing up and hearing directly from my parents that the idea of raising 10 children um, uh, with, you know, very little income in Colombia and the political circumstances led my parents to make the really difficult decision to leave everything behind. And for my mother in particular, you know, when I think about her, um, she was probably, she had me at 43. So she was probably about 46 at the time. And, um, she left everything, her family, her culture, her language, all in, in basically to give my nine brothers and sisters and I a better life. And so when she came, she was able to come with a green card, um, which is again, not the case today. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge changes. Uh, how were you and your family treated as immigrants in Cedar Falls, Rhode Island? Were there other immigrant families there as well? Yeah, what's interesting about Central Falls and is that it's actually um, a, a receiving community of whatever immigrant or refugee group is arriving in the United States. That's often who is living there. When we arrived, though, um, there weren't we were just the first Colombian families prior to us. It was mostly Polish, Portuguese and French Canadian um, and some Syrians actually as well. Hmm. But there were no um, English as a second language, for example, did not exist. There were no right. resources or things available for our family and our, our community members. Um, and so I know that my brothers and sisters in particular who were in their teens faced a lot of discrimination um, in, the, in, in, in school. In fact, they were, regardless of their age or grade level, um, they were all placed in a trailer, um, which is where they were taught. And eventually some of my, some of my siblings um, had to quit high school and worked in the factories as well. And that was true for all of us. We all worked in the factories. Yes. Um, um, you know, in, in our teenage years. Um, but my parents also faced a, a lot of discrimination, particularly um, because they didn't speak English. Um, and 
um, just the, the the same level of discrimination and workplace exploitation that immigrant workers today continue to experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You you called Cedar Falls a receiving community. Was that something formal, a, a government based thing, or just somebody no. decided? <laughs> that's yeah, where no, are going. Ca- that's right. No, I call it a, a receiving community in the sense that um, you know, look, most of the way people migrate. Um, First of all, migration is a global phenomenon, right? Since the beginning of humanity, people move and people move for a number of of reasons that have actually remained steady throughout our history um, as as a humanity, right? And, and, And to the United States, what we see is oftentimes people move to be with family. That was clearly one of the reasons my mother and some of my siblings and I came. My father was recruited for work purposes and he came first. And so those are often the reasons. Um, And and often when there is an, a job opportunity or when family or loved ones are there already, that then becomes the place where people come in. In fact, the Colombian community grew tremendously since we arrived. And in fact, the most recent mayor of Central Falls is the child of Colombian immigrant parents. And so that is often what happens, right, with next generations yes. uh, continue to expand. Yes, yes. certainly the case in West Marin for families who have come up from Mexico. Um, so you were doing a lot of translating, you said, uh, obviously you were observing a great deal. Uh, I'm sure you're, you're an observant woman anyway, but in that role as translating for your parents and perhaps your older siblings, you saw a lot and, and, uh, those, those structural barriers and inequities, do you want to give a few examples of the kind of thing that that you were up against, your family was up against? Yeah, no, thank you for the question, Lyons. Um, Absolutely, it's so interesting. I think as children, um, children are very observant. And uh, I think as a a young girl and, and as a woman, very intuitive. And I think I learned and picked up a lot about society as I was growing up and what seemed to be a very simple, you know, come with me to apply for this, um, you know, for this, to fill out some paperwork, et cetera. You know, my life, and my childhood was very much shaped by um, being an interpreter and learning to interpret not just from Spanish and English and English to Spanish, but actually interpreting culture um, and making sense of what was happening in the community, um, interpreting for my own parent-teacher meetings. I would go with my parents. Fortunately, I was a very good student, <laughs> but I you know, had to be the one who had to translate for my parents. Um, there weren't other resources like that. Um, I also was very shaped by our low-income status. Um, And my parents, they both worked in factories and um, there were often times where they were unemployed. And so becoming unemployed meant they had to apply for unemployment. We were fortunate that public policies at the time allowed us to apply for government programs like um, food stamps. And um, I recall one instant, uh, Lyons, that was very formative for me where my mother had sent me to get a gallon of milk. And I was walking back um, from the store and I guess as a child was trying to have a little bit of fun and I was carrying the gallon of milk on my head. I was holding (laughs) it, but I was carrying it in my head as I walked back home. My mother, I took very long to come home and my mother had been waiting for me at the door and she asked, you know, ¿Por qué se demoró tanto? Why did you take so long? And in that moment, the gallon of milk dropped. Uh-oh. And then I saw her face and 
I realized, and she then told me that was the last food stamp that we had. And that was the last gallon of milk that we had. And it was that um, experience of what it means to not have enough resources. It was that experience of learning um, how to make um, the best of the limited resources that we have. And what's interesting is that my parents, despite the fact that we were low income, a low income family, my parents also had a um, spirit of generosity and a great sense of abundance. And we often had um, when we were eating, for example, um, you know, when they served food, sometimes there's very small portions. And my mother would say, poquito porque es bendito, small amount because it's a blessed. And I really thought it was just because the food was blessed. And that was her way of in- incorporating religion into our day-to-day life. And it wasn't until much later that I realized it's because we actually had limited resources and we didn't have enough to go around for everyone. But I never felt um, that I didn't have enough. Um, the other um, experiences that I'll share actually have to do with the broader community. So as um, the years went by and I was growing up in Central Falls, it was, as I mentioned, a working class community with very limited educational and economic opportunities for everyone, not just for immigrants, not just for my family. Um, and I grew up a lot among a lot of drugs and a lot of crime and found that most of my peers either were getting pregnant because they didn't have access to reproductive health and other um, health services, or they were getting involved in gangs and going to jail. And so I was very, very aware um, of how racialized and the, the, the layer that and the role that class and gender play in our lives growing up. That was just so part of what I thought every child understood growing up. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to just note that the fact that your father and others were recruited from Colombia to come to Rhode Island is is a stark example of how the United States has long needed immigrants. You know, that the fact that they were recruited suggests they had skills that nobody locally had, no U.S. workers had. and that's just a, a fascinating to me glimpse of our history, the United States' history with immigrants and how folks have arrived here. I, Absolutely. I, I'm thinking about, uh, in order to understand the current patterns of immigration to the U.S., what do we need to know about the historical patterns? Yes. And, you know, I think that observation, Lyons, is so critical because that continues to be the case today. And, you know, you're sitting in West Marin and, you know, California, for example, so desperately has relied on immigrant labor throughout our history Um, and the country as a whole. You know, I would say a couple of things about the historical context is, you know, we often talk about the United States as a nation of immigrants. We are not a nation of immigrants. We are a nation of indigenous peoples. And we are a nation that um, enslaved Black people, people from Africa and other indentured servants from around the world. And so actually the first migrants um, were not, in fact, um, you know, the people coming on the Mayflower. Um, And so part of it is understanding how racialized and the racial violence that was actually the founding of this nation. The second thing is that um, our immigration laws from the very beginning were about race, class, and gender. So 
The yes. first Naturalization Act of 18 uh, of 1790 said that in order to be a U.S. citizen, you had to be a free white person who owned property. Well, mm-hmm. you've got free and white. So right there, we've got race <laughs> uh, and, and, and the class piece of it. And then at that time, the only people who were allowed to be property owners were also men. Um, and so from the inception of this country, from the beginning of who is considered worthy of being a citizen of the United States, it has always been about race and class mm-hmm. and gender. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who grew up white and um, sort of working class, uh, you know, we don't see outside our fishbowl. So it's so important for people like me to hear other stories. My immigrant stories are four plus generations back, and my family stories are more about what's happened in the time that family arrived on this continent. Uh, so it's easy to overlook what you don't know about or what you yeah. don't want to know I, about. Yeah. And I appreciate you mentioned that lines because I actually think that in this moment in our country, given how polarizing immigration issues are and how recent administrations and governments at the state and local level have actually used both immigration and race as a wedge issue, as a way to divide our country and our communities. Um, It's so critical that people reconnect to their own immigrant story, to their own immigrant history. Because again, unless you are a descendant and of enslaved Africans, or unless you're a Native American, then you have an immigrant story. It's not simply about who is arriving today. Right. I think there's a lot of fear there. Yes, uh, absolutely. Huge amount of fear. I don't want to be that person who comes and doesn't speak English and has no resources and so on. So please, you know, get out of my face. I don't, I don't want to see you. I don't want to know about you. Yeah. And that, that fear is very powerful and it works beautifully as a wedge. <laughs> really incredibly. Yes. No, I mean, that, that fear is um, is so present in our communities today. Um, just to go back to Rhode Island for a moment, one of my sisters is a teacher. She's a dual language um, teacher uh, and was recently um, teaching in a, I think, middle upper class community in, in Southern Rhode Island where there aren't any immigrant students. Um, and wow. Recently, um, the Board of Education there decided to terminate the dual language program because parents were suddenly um, complaining about the fact that their children were learning Spanish. Um, And I juxtapose that with the reality that um, in the rest of the world, it's so different. People see language as a positive thing. And in fact, I have no doubt that the fact that my mother insisted that I learn how to read and write Spanish before I even went to school in the United States actually is what has allowed me to be so successful as a bilingual, bicultural attorney, advocate, et cetera. And um, my uh, family member just visited um, from my partner's uh, sister and her son, eight-year-old child, speaks Swiss, 
It's uh, Italian, English, and French German at eight years old. And how beautiful that is in terms of the openings and that that child will have and that the white children in South Kingston, Rhode Island today will no longer have because of that fear that their parents are feeling in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My younger sister has a real gift for language. I have a slight gift. (laughs) she's fluent in Spanish and on the telephone, she is often mistaken for being a native Spanish speaker. And I tremendously admire that skill. I mean, even just translating language, your brain has to be so flexible and fluid. The cultural piece, you as a human being have to be so flexible and so fluid. And those are beautiful skills. And Again, it feels like it's fear. Oh, my God, I can't do that. Ah, That's right. uh, You know, I'm in danger. I'm at risk. Um, uh, It just makes me so sad that that we can be so driven by fear. Well, let's talk about the today. Who is migrating today and why? Uh, You mentioned that... um, at least in an earlier conversation, you talked about, you know, in, in the olden days, it used to be men who would come first. And in fact, in your family's story, your father came first and the rest of you were able to come later. But that's not quite the same as what's happening, say, in the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. So as you mentioned yourself, Lyons, right, one of the major drivers of migration in the past has been that employers themselves have recruited workers. And oftentimes that has been recruiting immigrant men to come fill all kinds of jobs, right? Whether it's agriculture, whether it's, you know, building the train stations and train tracks, um, whether it is factory workers like my father, Um But in fact, today, what we're seeing is that more than half of the immigrants in the United States today are actually women. And many of the women, we we currently in the United States have um, more than 23 million immigrant women. Um, And most women actually are coming through family-based immigration system. Again, coming to meet family members um, rather than coming necessarily for work. Although, again, many of them are, especially more um, higher educated women also. what we are also finding is that many of the women are in the, um, about a, a fourth of women are in the workforce, particularly in the service sector and the care economy, right? So yes. these are the very women, right, um, that have been essential, the very workers that have been essential to helping us get out of the pandemic um, and to emerge healthier as a community, right? That is everyone who is helping to put food on our tables, whether in the fields, preparing food, right? Cooking food, taking care of our children and our loved ones who are sick, um, educating future generations like my sisters, right? So those, all of those contributions um, that immigrant women and men have been making, um, yet the existing power structures have not recognized, right? The racial and gender discrimination that often happens um, in the workplace and in communities and beyond, The other part of migration that we haven't talked about, but we're seeing a lot of right now is people who are migrating for fear of their safety, you know, for for, for fear of their safety, who are, who are migrating yes. in search of freedom, in search of safety, right? These are the yes. people who throughout our history have come as refugees or asylees, right? They have come to the United States to seek asylum. And 
again, the United States has a rich, rich history of that. And one of the major drivers today of migration, especially if you look at migration at the U.S.-Mexico border um, from Central America, particularly what's called the Northern Triangle, so that's Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, one of the major drivers of migration there is about gender violence, which we can talk some more about. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Marielena Incapie and Lyons Filmer. Well, we we know that there are a lot of women leaders now, immigrant women leaders. We've got the piece of what's going on in the United States and this very positive increase of women leaders. But there's also the question of the home countries from which the immigrants are coming. The U.S. has uh, foreign policy where they give foreign aid to various countries around the world. But I think there's a real question as to does that money get where it's actually needed? Um, what, what can be done on that level, on the, the home country level? Is it appropriate for the United States to be involving itself in any way in immigrants' home countries. Absolutely, right? And and the reason, again, Lyons, is because migration is a global phenomenon. And in fact, I would say that one of the failures of the immigrant rights movement, so I take some responsibility for that, um, and the United States as a whole, is that we've seen immigration through a domestic policy lens, when in fact, it's a global phenomenon that needs to be addressed by Um, both by all uh, countries around the world, but particularly regionally. Um, And when we look at, um, again, let's just use the Northern Triangle of Central America as an example, is that if one of the major drivers of migration is climate disaster, it is about the lack of economic opportunities and educational opportunities. But if it's also about gender-based violence and, um, you know, in the, the statistics show that there is rarely justice for, for women in those countries when they're facing gender-related killings, we're talking about pandemic, endemic levels of femicide, right? This is people who are being killed, either women or little girls because of their gender or people who identify, who are trans and who identify as female who are being killed because of that. Um, One of the things that the United States can and should be doing is investing in civil society, ensuring that economic aid, educational aid, foreign aid is going to um, create opportunities for civil society, women-led organizations to be building greater healing opportunity, to look at um, restorative justice opportunities, to look at opportunities for greater health, including mental health, reproductive health, um, so that women have opportunities and have the care that they need, including the care that they need to get out of domestic violence relationships or to address the intrafamilial relationships. And so there's a lot that the United States can and should do to ensure that Um, We're looking actually at the root causes of migration rather than waiting until someone is at our door. But the fact is that when there's a burning house, people are going to 
run out of that house. They will jump out the window. They will run out the front door or the back door, even if they're not fully dressed, even if they're barefoot. And that's what's happening right now is that the level of violence is so great in certain countries, um, Mm -hmm. particularly the level of gender-based violence that we absolutely need to be addressing these challenges and what's considered immigration and particularly at the border um, Mm -hmm. actually is really a uh, gender-based solution that is needed. It's really about a mental and, and and broader community health solutions that are needed as well. And of course, these are all issues that exist within the United States' boundaries, gender violence, uh, inequality, everything that you named, uh, Absolutely. climate disaster. So we've got quite a, a wide screen we need to be looking at. And I think that the paradigm shift in thinking and from my point of view, our feelings often drive our thinking that we need a, an enormous shift, a very conscious shift in order to address yes. these issues at home as well as in any kind of uh, intervention in other countries. That's right. And I would say that this is about... Um, You know, we're recognizing that one of the reasons we have immigration is often as a result of immigration, of foreign policy. It is about the historical role of intervention, foreign policy intervention and war that has led and has resulted in pushing people out um, of their countries and displacing people. Um, We have an opportunity now, as you're saying, right, this paradigm shift that I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about, which is we're going to see and we are experiencing record levels of migration around the world, record levels of refugees, especially also because of climate disasters, because of the rise of authoritarianism and war around the world. And so waiting for people to come here and for the laws to catch up with the changes that are needed is not the answer. So we really first need to have a paradigm shift about trying to understand why people move to begin with, right? And ensuring that we look at the ability of how can people have the freedom to stay, the freedom to stay in their home country so that Mm. people like my mother don't actually have to make that hard decision to leave and leave everything behind, including and traveling with her children. We were fortunate. We came again at a time that this country was more welcoming and we were able to benefit from the economic and educational opportunities, limited as they were for our family. There there were still progressive policies that allowed us to thrive and that today among my brothers and sisters, despite the fact that my parents had a second and fifth grade education, they didn't speak English, they were minimum wage factory workers, all of my nine brothers and sisters and I have had the great opportunity to be educated and to fulfill our 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 great um, our dreams, right, as individuals and to thrive. But what if we instead allowed people to thrive in their home country? What if instead we allowed people to have the freedom to stay in their home country, have those educational and economic opportunities, live in healthier communities? be empowered as women to be business owners, to run for local office, government office. What if we had the Americas full of president 
female presidents around the all of the South, North, South, Central, and North America. Yeah. I have no doubt that women in power will be able to radically change and to see the world through a very different gendered lens um, that will allow us to have greater collective freedom, um, liber- you know, liberation, and grounded in that gender, racial, and class justice. Are there any? world organizations, the UN, the World Health Organization, that you feel are are contributing significantly to uh, improving things for women and girls in particular in their home countries? You know, there are definitely a number of entities like the UN, USAID, et cetera, that have existed for many years. But I actually think we're at an inflection point where there's a need to actually create new entities. And particularly in civil society, from an advocacy perspective, we need to have transnational networks. We need to have transnational um, coming together to really develop new strategies to meet this moment, which where we're experiencing at a global level, real existential crises. But But again, I think that that is where what I have found, um, particularly with immigrant leaders, uh, women leaders in the United States as well, is that despite all of these challenges, just like my mother was so optimistic and so full of life and had a glass half full view, um, that, that ability for women to come together support each other, to be empowered as an individual, but to empower other women and other people in their families and their communities and society. I'm very hopeful about the future, particularly with women at the front, at the forefront. Yeah. What, what uh, simplistically are the qualities you think that women have natively, if you will, uh, that make us good leaders or potentially good leaders? Yeah. I mean, look, I think that part of it is that we are um, looking at the collective, right? That we are natural caregivers and caretakers and that part of what is needed right now, what I see in a lot of women migrant leaders is that we are not, it's not that individualistic perspective, but instead looking at what does the community need? What does society need? What does our planet, what does Mother Earth need? And that connection, including, including I think, at a very spiritual and intuitive place, um, that connection with we, there's a larger purpose. There's a larger us that we are part of, that we have to be fighting for all of us. And I've seen that consistently in my life. Many role models, including many of the plaintiffs that I have represented in litigation who are the first ones to say, I may not get anything out of this, but I'm fighting for the larger good. Wonderful. I'm just having a moment of peace picturing <laughs> what you're mm-hmm. describing. This is wonderful. Well, you, Maria Elena Incapie, are certainly one of those people. And I, I tremendously admire you. And I appreciate your having this conversation and spreading this around. Um, Do you, how do you see other women, immigrant women, getting into the the leadership position? I'm, excuse me, uh, the the United States, of course, has this history of, you know, I'm an individual, I pull up my own bootstraps, which really flies in the face of notions like community, that that the individual is is important as a part of that community strength. 
Um, that strikes me as being part of the paradigm shift that has to happen for those of us raised with that kind of thinking. Absolutely. Yes. You know, when I first, so I've been at the National Immigration Law Center now for 22 years, and I became executive director 14 years ago. And when I became executive director, I was the only immigrant leading a national legal advocacy organization at the time. And ah. many of, and I was the first immigrant leading an immigrant, the National Immigration Law Center, um, and first person of color, actually, as well. But what has happened over the last 14 years has been a beautiful growth of the movement in which many immigrant women, including many undocumented women themselves, are leading organizations now. Um, and where we are really looking at the broader ecosystem and how are we contributing and how are we running not only our own organizations, but how are we building a healthier ecosystem where, again, the sums add up to this greater whole that actually benefits all of us. And um, so, you know, I think of people like Patrice Lawrence, who is a an immigrant from Jamaica, who is the current leader of the Undocu Black Network. I think of people like Grecia Martinez Rojas, who is the executive director of the United We Dream Network, which is one of the largest or the largest undocumented youth-led organizations. Then I also think about people like Juana Flores in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, who has been one of the key leaders of Mujeres Unidas y Activas, an organization that when I first moved to, to the Bay Area after I graduated from law school, was so inspiring. And I have no doubt that she and her um, colleagues at Mujeres Unidas y Activas were such a source of inspiration for me as other immigrant women leaders um, who were playing that support role for each other, right? Really creating that support role for many women who were domestic workers, who were experiencing the kind of violence that we were talking about earlier, whether domestic intrafamilial violence or, you know, harassment in the workplace, for example, and helping to navigate the system. I also think about organizations like Visión y Compromiso, which is the promotoras, right? These are the women. These are the women who are helping to serve as health workers, right? They have expertise and they're trusted in our communities to be that liaison, to help people, um, for example, during the pandemic, to trust that it was okay to come forward and get a vaccine, that to come forward and get tested, to get the care that they need. And I think of the role of promotoras so critical, especially in this moment, given the Supreme Court's recent decision on Roe um, and the restriction on reproductive health rates. It's not just abortion. For many women, Right. For many immigrant women, that is the only time that they are finding out whether they have cervical cancer or whether they have other reproductive needs um, and care that they need that now is being restricted, particularly in, in state, certain states across the country. Well, and I think uh, locally in West Marin of Socorro Romo, who has been the director of West Marin Community Services and Promotores and uh, bringing together different parts of the English-speaking and the Spanish-speaking communities to to create that overall community. Uh, and Absolutely. I know the promotores have been extremely valuable and important in this work. 
Absolutely. And I think there are countless numbers of shiros across the country that are not as well known and who should be well known. And I think one of the things about women's work in general, whether you're U.S. born, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're immigrant, is that it often tends to be invisible. And we have a moment that I think the pandemic created, which is to recognize people, to recognize the very people that make our life possible. And a lot of those workers, a lot of those essential workers um, happen to be immigrant and happen to be immigrant women. And I think that part of the, the opportunity we have right now is to that the pandemic has exposed, right? Exposed all of the racial and health inequities and also exposed how interconnected we are, right? How your health and my health, like just, we both have to be healthy. Our collective health and well-being requires all of us being healthy. And um, there is this opening to recognize people as essential for their humanity, right? Essential for their dignity, not for the work that they're doing, but for who we are in our communities and in society. Mm. Thank you for saying it like that. It's beautiful. Well, at this 14-year mark as executive director of the National Immigrant Law Center, where are you? (laughs) Is there a a transition happening here? Absolutely. Yes. So I have announced that I will be transitioning um, as executive director. It's, you know, it's been such a beautiful journey. I feel so deeply honored to have been at the National Immigration Law Center for the last two decades and to have had the opportunity to lead an organization that was founded for the very families like mine, right? Low-income immigrant families. And we're a leaderful organization. We're a leaderful movement. And I think that because of the moment that we're in, Um, with the state of our democracy, with climate change, with um, patriarchy continuing to loom its head, like all of these issues are issues that um, I want to spend more time on. I'm feeling called to play a different role. Um, I'm feeling called to really lean in, to have the spaciousness to really think about um, what does this paradigm shift that I've been thinking about really look like in practice? What is needed at a more global level? Um, and how do we normalize migration? And how do we help people in the United States tap back into their immigrant roots? And you're working on a book. I am. I am. (laughs) I feel like most of it is in my head. Again, I had a great opportunity, great opportunity when I met you first, Lions, when I was at the Missa Refuge back in May. So I have um, started working on it, still working on a book proposal, which uh, um, I have less time than I thought I could create for it. But um, once I leave uh, Nilk in the next few months, that I will have lots more time. And that's what I plan to dedicate myself, both giving myself permission to pause and rest and spend, go, I'm actually planning to go to Colombia uh, for a few months and spending some time with family, but also then to get down into writing over the next year. So I'm really excited about that opportunity. So you're going to uh, use your personal story as a thread going through the the global nature of immigration. That's right. So it's part memoir, uh, and when I say my personal story, it is not actually just my uh, my my family's immigration from Colombia, but actually because we have such a large family, as you can imagine, um, my family is made up of people who are children of Irish uh, Americans, of uh, Polish Americans, of uh, Dutch. 
and German. Um, so I actually really, that's part of the story I want to tell is that my family alone is representative of the United States. And so um, helping, again, tell my family's story and our experience with the immigration system, which runs the gamut of the complexity of our immigration system, but then using that story to, to connect back to history, to make sense of how how did we get to where we are today on immigration? And then the third part really is looking forward, really taking this more global uh, perspective and this paradigm shift that I think is desperately needed for the yes. moment that we're in in history. Yes. Are there organizations or books already written or speakers who you find valuable, particularly in terms of their their looking forward. Uh, I mean, it's it's easy to go back and track some history. It's fairly easy to you know see what's happening now. Um, the glass half full. I love that that was your mom's perspective. Mm-hmm. Who's who's providing us besides yourself um, with or have been inspirational to you for looking to that forward. Yeah, so I, um, there are many people I could uh, mention, but actually Lyons, one of the, um, so some of the reading that I've done that I'm actually then now hoping to go meet them is a lot of the indigenous women leaders, again, not surprising, they're women, uh, but a lot of the indigenous communities in the Americas, particularly in South America, have been developing this framework of el buen vivir, the good living, the good living, the good life, which Mm. is really about what everyone needs to thrive in regardless of where you live, where you were born, what race, what color, how much money you have. And so I, I have been very inspired by their thinking at the local level and what that means. And I think there's a lot for us to learn from mm. them um, about what this future paradigm could be when it comes to migration. The other piece of inspiration for me, frankly, is nature, right? It's nature and it's birds. I actually think that, again, migration is such a global phenomenon of all living beings that I'm really looking forward to spending some time um, over the next year learning about migration from other beings like birds. Wonderful. Mm. I think the one thing that I would say, Lyons, is that... um, you know, we've been talking at a very macro level. We've talked about history a little bit, about the changes, about immigration patterns, and about my longer-term view. And there's so much that needs to be done right now. And so I wouldn't be the advocate that I am um, if I didn't share that in this moment, there are things that viewers and listeners can do, um, which is reaching out to Congress um, on two particular pieces um, of legislation. So one is um, the Lift the Ban Act. And this is a bill that was introduced, speaking of migrant women, by um, Senator Hirono uh, from Hawaii, who is an immigrant herself. So the only immigrant um, in, in, in the Senate, and then um, the amazing Congresswoman uh, Jim, uh, Pramila Jayapal in the House. And both Representative Jayapal and Senator Hirono introduced this bill, which would lift the five-year bar that 
women that immigrants who are here who are lawfully present for their first five years are blocked from getting certain services like health services. And there are other provisions to that bill, but at a very macro level, there's since welfare reform, since 1996, women and children who are lawfully present have been blocked. This is not even about undocumented immigrants, right? These are folks who are lawfully present. And so ensuring that people have greater health justice is critical. And one piece of information that one piece of action that people can take immediately is um, contacting your members of Congress so that the lift the ban is voted on and get becomes law. Um, and I'll provide a link about that. And then second is DACA. So as folks probably are very aware, um, we just celebrated the 10th year anniversary of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, um, which has been one of the most transformative public policies um, on immigration in, in decades. And this was a policy which was temporary. It was basically um, fought for and won by the very undocumented youth who convinced President Obama to announce this temporary protection from deportation. And since then, it has been one of the most successful policies and has transformed not only their lives and their families, but the communities and the country as a whole. Well, DACA is at risk of um, being struck down by the next by the Supreme Court in its next term. And so we think that is long overdue that a Democratic White House and a Democratic Senate and House have the opportunity right now to pass the DREAM Act and create a path to citizenship for those young people while we continue to fight for legalization for all 11 million uh, community members that we have right now. But I will add um, to the chat right now the links that people can use um, from our website, which is nilc.org and forward slash action will take you directly to those web pages. Maria Elena, I just wanted to, to touch briefly on the, your connection to this task force, administrative task force, you had a call uh, recently, a couple of days ago. Is oh, that- yes. Yeah. So that was a call about DACA. So the U.S. Um, Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is one of the agencies that's part of the Department of Homeland Security, but they're the ones who are charged with implementing DACA and other things like naturalization, citizenship, et cetera, and green cards. Um, They had a call to announce a new rule um, that unfortunately, I mean, it's a great step from the Biden administration, much needed. But what we know is that actually what is needed is a permanent solution that only Congress can provide. So that is why we both applaud what the Biden administration did, but also um, are urging um, Congress to take action now and put those young people on a path to citizenship. Yes. Absolutely. Well, let's go into the question and answer period from Victor Reyes. Can you give some examples of, quote, cultural interpretation, end quote? Can you mention the role of drug cartels and drug consumption in violence and immigration? Sure. Those are really great questions, Victor. I mean, just briefly, because I think we could have a whole other session about cultural interpretation um, is, you know, a recognition that um, the, the power of language, first and foremost, and also the 
for Latin America in particular, Spanish is a uniting language. Um, and there are many people in our countries um, that actually speak many other languages, indigenous languages, yes. um, that are where Spanish isn't their native language. Um, and then separately, that even with Spanish, although most of us in Latin America can speak Spanish, um, what what one word or phrase means in Colombia is very different for what it means for Puerto Ricans or for Mexicans or, you know, Nicaraguans. And so part of it is really understanding the cultural piece of how to use language in a way that you're translating, not just the literal translation, but truly what does it mean for that community, for that speaker? Um, and then beyond that, there's a lot more in terms of that cultural interpretation that I could say, but it's the, it's taking a much more holistic um, and full and yeah, more holistic um, way to understand how to interpret beyond the literal translation of lang of words. Um, oh, your question about the role of drug cartels. And, you know, look, what I will say is that um, the new administration in uh, Colombia, um, Colombia just had a very historic election, largest number of voters coming out to elect the first progressive um, administration that includes not just the new president, um, Gustavo Petro, but the first feminist Afro-Colombian climate justice activist, uh, Francia Marquez, who is just such a source of inspiration. One of the things that they're calling for is a global end to the war on drugs, because what the war on drugs has resulted in is greater violence and greater death. And, and the way he spoke about it in his inauguration was it has resulted in the killings of millions of Colombians. And I would add Mexico and many other places where there's a drug war happening, as well as people in the United States or other countries who are consuming drugs and overdosing. And so that, that approach, that criminal justice approach of shutting down and putting people in jail, but rather than going at the root causes, again, why are people engaging in um, some of the um, consumption of drugs to begin with? Some, as we know with marijuana, for example, has now been legalized in many places, but there are other drugs that actually, you know, are, are, are more harmful and have result out of a, a need for mental health services and other needs that those uh, individuals may need. And so um, the drug drug war has absolutely been a driver of migration, um, particularly because of the violence um, and the, the need for asylum, for sure, that's been the case for Colombia throughout our history. And I see that happening with Mexico right now when you look at the even the most recent violence that has happened. And yet, there is a Western hemispheric bias in this country, in the United States, where we actually don't look at people coming from Latin America. People coming from the south of the border are not considered refugees or worthy of being here the same way we look at somebody right now coming from Ukraine or Afghanistan, for example. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Marielena Incapie and Lyons Filmer. I think about uh, in California, there's discussion of creating safe using spaces where there's uh, supervision of some kind as a way to uh, help, help, help people who are using, avoiding some of those overdoses and so on. That's right. That's right. Interesting. Um, 
attempt. Next question from Susan Page Tillett. Maria Elena, how do you navigate the very different roles of boots on the ground activist and writer about major themes? How do you prioritize your priorities? Oh, Susan, that is a great question. I wish I could say that I was doing a good job of prioritizing. Um, I mean, first, I would say, um, just very humbly, I do not think of myself as a boots on the ground activist because there are, I, you know, head a national organization, so work at a different level. There are many folks who are at the really truly on the front lines and in the grassroots in a very different way. Um, that said, as an advocate, um, I, it's a struggle. It's hard to um, create the space to be able to do this thinking. And so part of it is that, right? It's just like, I have personally made a decision that um, being a writer is among the identities that I really want to embrace. And so now I'm I'm needing to create that, um, the space for that, just the same way I schedule a call with the Biden administration or with another advocate, I need to create space in my calendar for the writing. And the last thing that I would say is, of course, this is where the Mesa Refuge comes in to have had the privilege because of the May and Jack Public Health Fellowship, um, allowing me to be at a beautiful refuge like Mesa to do some of that initial thinking and writing is invaluable. And so thank you again for that. Elaine Ellenson, also connected to Mesa Refuge, writes, today the UFW marchers are on the last leg of a march from Delano to Sacramento to ask the governor to sign a bill, AB 2183, that would allow farm workers to vote for a union in a secret ballot. As Maria Elena explained, California depends on immigrant workers. Why do you think this injustice still persists? What are the best ways to organize to challenge it? Absolutely. I mean, look, um, farm workers are often that, um, you know, the, that they are the ones who are often pointing to, throughout our history in the United States, right, everything that is... Um, that that level of exploitation, that inhumanity, that the very people that feed us, the very people that allow us to live every single day are the most vulnerable and exploited and mistreated. And um, the, the courage, however, that they have, right, going back to that that courage, that grit that so many of them have, including, you know, Dolores Huerta still in her, at her age, being such an inspiring leader for so many of us um, and fighting not just for farm workers, but for democracy. I think that the, um, we're in a different moment, however. Um, we are in a moment that the combination of the pandemic and the economic crisis and racial violence in the nation, um, I would add the gender and patriarchy, especially now with Roe, that worker empowerment has become um, a cry, a cry for a participatory democracy in a more just and equitable society in ways that we haven't seen in recent decades. And so I'm actually very hopeful that a state like California can help lead the way to finally remove those restrictions so that every worker, regardless of whether they are a farm worker or regardless of whether they have a different immigration status, has the freedom to organize and to elect a union and to improve their working conditions for all of them. I would say that similar to what's happening in California, um, we are at the, at the, just at the, cusp 
of achieving a victory from the Biden administration where they would announce that um, workers that are engaged in labor disputes, like if they're organizing a union or uh, complaining about unpaid wages or sexual harassment on the job, will be able to come forward and to get deferred action in a protection from deportation um, that would allow them, like DACA, to have that protection from deportation, but also to get work authorization and pursue those labor disputes. And you know, one of the people that I think of as the at the vanguard of that was is a uh, an immigrant woman from California, Silvia Contreras, who filed the first lawsuit against an employer for having retaliated against her because of her immigration status, because she came forward seeking her unpaid wages. And I had the great honor of representing her um, in at the beginning of my legal career. But Silvia's courage and grit, knowing that she got she did not get a single penny, but that her case set the legal precedent for all workers to be able to get that protection um, will finally hopefully be codified at a federal um, federal law under federal administration change by the Biden administration. Akira poses this question. You talked about some of these, but what traditions and viewpoints do the women of your family or your Colombian culture have that have served you well and what you think would be helpful in this culture as we look for the wisdom of women in these times? So, you know, I think one of the things, and particularly I'm from um, the, I'm from Medellin, Colombia, so the state of Antioquia and or the department is what we call them in Colombia. Um, we're very entrepreneurial and very um just very driven and very, um, again, committed to the whole, right, to the family. We have come from very large families generally, uh, at least in my generation. And, you know, so part of, I think, the, the, the culture is that we're in this for all of us, right? And that um, part of what all of my siblings, particularly when I think of my sisters, are health providers, are scientists, biochemists, educators, they're all in different fields where they are actually, I think of as healers, healing our communities and our society in different ways. And so um, I think that the 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 way, the path forward, when I think about both Colombian women who use art and culture as really central to who we are as a way to express um, both love of our land, love of humanity, and the future and also the other thing about Colombian culture and particularly women is joy, right? Is the the joy that music and dancing um, brings to our daily life. And that is often a tool in very hard times. And so I would, I would really um, encourage us all, not just women, but everybody really to be continuing to tap into those sources of joy. I think of your uh, talking about birds and nature, there's got to be huge joy in that for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably one of the greatest sources of joy for me. And talking, and they're connected to music, right? They are the yeah. originators of music. Yes. <laughs> uh, on another program on KWMR that I share uh, with my friend Janet Robbins, we read books aloud, and they are books that uh, show in some way uh, the relationship between we two-legged humans and the rest of the natural world that, that we inhabit and share. And the current book we're reading is by a Los Angeles man named Charles Hood, who's very mm -hmm. funny and very sharp and knows a lot about birds. 
So oh, wonderful. I'll have to look that up. I would recommend Charles Hood for that beautiful thing. Um, I, I, what also occurred to me, I was thinking of, um, okay, brain, I know you can do this. Um, braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall, Kimmerer. Absolutely such a beautiful book. Ugh. Uh, yeah. Almost heartbreakingly beautiful. Yes. And she's one of those remarkable people who is able to combine the the pragmatic, the quote scientific mm-hmm. perspective way of gathering information and knowledge with, with a joyful, intuitive, heart-based, and in her case, indigenous uh, native Indian woman. Uh, from her family, and I'm I'm seeing the well. There's so many books out saying, okay, now here's the scientific accuracy about our DNA or how the brain works or this, that, or the other thing. Um, and we're still in a place of uh, holding up science as though it were against our other innate human qualities or qualities of the non-human animal kingdom. Um, does that play any kind of a role in your, in your cultural life, um, in what you see happening with immigration? It's like, oh, yeah. we've got too many people. Uh, these people are consuming too much. Uh, Yes. No, I think it's a the, this human-centric <laughs> approach to life and a U.S.-centric approach to life as well um, is, I think, at the core of some of the challenges that we have with migration. And so breaking out of that, I think, is necessary as part of this paradigm. And again, as I mentioned, it's one of the reasons I'm excited about having the spaciousness to really learn from nature about migration, right? Like, what are all of the ways that we humans are impacted? impacting birds and whales and, and, you know, even plants and trees in other ways, but also um, how has, you know, over time, um, how have we as human beings adapted to all of the things, including climate change, since that's such a driver right now. Um, But I do think that there is, um, there's an opening at this time to really marry the kind of science and nature and indigenous knowledge and wisdom um, and and to use, I think, to really tap into art and and creativity, um, you know, for that as well. I um, recently in like my adult life learned that um, Colombia happens to be, that has the largest number of the species of birds. And so I didn't even realize that I had that connection um that it was like oh maybe that's why i really love birds so much so i i think that there there's a lot to be learned and for the paradigm shifts that we need the solutions that are needed in this moment when we're ex- experiencing such seismic shifts in our society and in the world and in the universe that we need different ways we we need to tap into all of the different ways of knowing all of the different sources of wisdom um including you know 
going back in history to some of the most natural and indigenous ways of knowing, which is a lot of what we need now, actually. Um, it's kind of like the that, that wisdom that's always been there that we have almost forgotten about, but that's actually what will show the path forward. And I think on migration, given that the so many countries around the world are experiencing both the same levels of climate disaster, for example, or authoritarianism or violence, and yet the demographic shifts show that there are some countries like the United States that are actually going to need greater levels of migration um, as well. And so um, the, the need to look at both the science, the data, plus these more innate indigenous natural ways of knowing and wisdom. And someone with the initials SY says, Maria Elena, what do you do to take care of yourself and rejuvenate to sustain your advocacy? Ah, great question. So one is first and foremost is having gotten to the place in my life where I recognize the importance of that. And so one of the things I'm doing, for example, right now, as I decided to transition from the National Immigration Law Center is to give myself permission to pause, to actually take some time um, to be able to uh, focus on that. But on the day to day, um, I meditate, I have a yoga practice, and then really it's nature, um, really taking the time to um, walk in the park go you can listen to birds anywhere you can walk out of your home and birds are always there as are trees and I have a deep connection to trees as well and so um, being able to visit my tree friends on walks including sometimes during the pandemic what I've learned is I would be on a conference call and then I take pictures of flowers and things that are blooming on my on my conference calls and things, little things like that, that give me joy. Um, and of course, spending time with loved ones is always a great source of joy, plus music and dancing and, and, and food. Mm -hmm. And here we are talking about in a wonderful way and sometimes silence is the necessary thing. Oh, yes. Breath. Come back in. So mm -hmm. daily meditation. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, sometimes yeah. a daily meditation practice seems too... Um, overwhelming for people when you're so used to being on the go and doing, doing, doing. And um, one uh, lesson that I've learned recently is the miracle minute, un minuto milagroso, which is just literally putting the timer on for a minute and being with yourself, your thought, your, your breath. And when you do that, you recognize how timeless it is when we're only focused on our breath. And so that miracle minute to me has been uh, a, a great source of, um, of of peace and calm and sometimes in very turbulent times that we're in right now. Yeah. It's it's been hard for me to believe that such a short piece could really benefit me. Yes. So I, I have to act as if I believe it and take those <laughs> miracle minutes. I'm a member of the Kaiser Health group. Mm. And that's one of the things that they send out as you know taking care of yourself, wellness practices is just that one minute. Oh, that's great. That's Quite so great. Astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, will you be going away? You said you're going to Colombia. Will that be a long visit or a short visit? Yeah. So I haven't, I, I'm a planner by nature. I feel like I plan everything in my life and especially work-wise. So I'm not <laughs> 
right now making many plans, except I do plan to um, go to Colombia for a while, like several months at least. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't been able to spend as much time with my family there because of the pandemic. Um, and I have a lot to learn. I just really feel um, there's this, again, because of the new administration, the new government in Colombia, I'm very hopeful for the world because their three pillars are peace, social justice, and climate justice. And I think that they will have a really important role throughout the Western Hemisphere, and that will benefit the world as a whole. And so I have a lot to learn about what's happening in Colombia right now and uh, lots of bird watching to do while I'm there. And then, of course, lots of (laughs) eating, lots of great food and and music, which is uh, also just a great source of joy for me. So those are my current plans right now. And how is your family in Colombia doing? Fortunately, folks are well, um, in relatively speaking. Um, we've had several people who were impacted by the pandemic, but not um, not as bad. I, I did have some losses. Um, I have an aunt who passed away earlier this year from cancer, but who was impacted, of course, by the pandemic because of the challenges with care in these last couple of years. Um, but generally, people are well. Thank you for asking. Oh, that's good. Well, I've I've been interested in how you said at least two or three times now that the pandemic is actually creating opportunities for us, including for that paradigm shift. And I hadn't really thought about it that way. That's more of a glass half full view. (laughs) (laughs) One can say that. That's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, I think the pandemic is a, you know, first and foremost, it's exposed all of the pre-existing fissures that many of us have known about, right? Everything from our public health system to um, the economic model that we live and operate in or don't operate because it doesn't work as well for most of us. Um, The immigration and the labor system and the fact that so many people of color, particularly workers, have been excluded from the very basic needs that they have and resources that they need. And so I do think that this this is an opening, it's an awakening, and that it challenges us to absolutely not go back to the way things were before. And I personally am very committed to um, doing what I can, at least in my personal life and the, the people that I have um, impact on, to, um, to use this as an opening for some real radical changes. And again, radical changes that are grounded in nature and that are about our broader ecosystem, our ecosystem ecological health um, that are grounded in, in gender and racial and economic and health justice. I think there's there's no way that we cannot take this moment to learn from what has what we have been through and find different ways forward. Thank you so much, Maria Elena in Capier, for helping me and our other participants to see your perspective on things and to soak in some of your very beautiful and positive thinking. I I so appreciate talking with you. Mm, Gracias, Lions. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yes. Well, I think we'll turn it back over to Kamala. I'm Lions Filmer and have been in conversation with Marielena Incapie. And we thank so much the New School at Commonweal the Mesa Refuge Writers Retreat, West Marin Fund, all the people who are making this conversation possible. And thank you, 
dear participants, for joining us today. Kamala, it's yours. Lyons and Mary Elena, I just want to thank you both for such an insightful conversation today. And Mary Elena, um, I, as you've been talking about migration, I have just been seeing you at the Mesa Refuge, grabbing those binoculars, I think maybe five minutes after you arrived and walking all over the garden. And um, it was just that image of you and the Mesa Refuge Garden, just with your binoculars, looking up at the birds and all that flight that happens over to Mollus Bay. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to bring that image um, back to you and into this this webinar, but your story, Mary Elena, and wisdom is such a gift. And thank you for sharing it with us today. And your book, we will eagerly await this book that you will be writing after your pause, after you've had time to, um, you know, just breathe and and see what what um, what comes out of you. But um, we eagerly await it. And I want to just thank everybody for being here and and pass it to Kira. All right. Thank you, Kamala. I, I just agree with everything you said. <laughs> um, so much appreciation to you, Marilena, for your wisdom and for everything you do in the world, and Lyons and Flavia for bringing your skills and wisdom to this conversation as well. Again, we will have recordings produced of this conversation in about a week or two. They'll be on our websites, tns.commonweal.org and mesarefuge.org. And be sure to find The New School on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and like and subscribe for more conversations about nature, culture, and inner life. Marilena Incampier and host Lions Filmer, and everyone at the Mesa Refuge, thank you for joining us at The New School at Commonweal. See you next time, everyone. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Marielena Encapier and Lyons Filmer. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.